0: Today's reading comes from Genesis chapter 17, verses 1 through 14.
1: When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty, walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, My covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep, between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant.:
0: It's the word of the Lord, you may be seated. Today's message will actually be over the entire chapter of 17, but I thought I'd give your legs a rest um, and just have you stand for the first half. Hey, Carson Faith, how are you guys doing? Started to see things yet? Right, they were at prom last night. Uh, I'm, so, I'm so grateful you guys were here this morning. And um, I didn't go to prom. Uh, it was a bit different in AG churches back then. Um, but we did, I did after prom and everything. And I remember coming to church the next day. And uh, you start seeing the spots when you hit that second wall of tiredness. Well... We are in the series on the three most famous men of the Old Testament. When Moses asked God whom he should say is sending him, God told him that he was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. They and the 12 sons of Jacob are collectively known as the patriarchs, or the male founders and leaders of a people. So, last time on patriarchs. Last time on patriarchs I preached this a number of weeks ago but during the Easter sermons was actually a continuation of the sermon from chapter 15 of Genesis because it was the Abrahamic covenant. This is the second major covenant God makes, the first one being the Noahic, the one with Noah, which the Lord promises not to flood the earth again and gives a sign of that covenant being a rainbow. the terms of the covenant with Abraham had been stated, the sacrifice made the cutting of the covenant completed, however, the sign of the covenant is given in the chapter that we are reading today. Now, you might wonder, okay, what happened to chapter 16? That is part, huge part of Abraham's life, of course. And actually, I've already preached on chapter 16, so we are sort of skipping it, but not really. You can go on the church website, Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Facebook, and it would be under the, uh, it would be under the heading, Names of God, El-Rohi meaning the God who sees me. Um, we're not really skipping it. I've preached on 16 before during the sermon series on the names of God. It's there they attempt to, that Sarai, um, Sarai and Abram, they try to help God complete the covenant. And so Sarai gives her, her maidservant Hagar to Abram to have a baby with. You know, I, I really, it's one of those really tragic moments where they try to help God. You know, God didn't need help. God is the one who walked through alone, through the, through the animals that had been sacrificed. He did not need their help with this, but they figured we're going to help him with this. But I really don't think anybody's fooled. Sarai said that this will happen, then she'll say the baby's hers. You know what we see in the biblical account? At no point in time after that does anybody say, oh yeah, Ishmael is Sarai's baby, Sarai's baby. Nobody sees it that way. In fact, Hagar, she starts having a bit of an attitude. Sarah starts being a bit cruel. And my uh, missions professor in college, who was a Messianic Jew, he said, there's no wrath like an angry older Jewish woman. He said it, not me. Um, (laughs) Hagar, she takes off. She's not going to stand for that. She's in the wilderness waiting to die. And God meets with her there. And after meeting with her, tells her what he plans to do through her and through her child. And she calls him El Royhi, the God who sees me. But a great reminder that in our time when we feel overlooked, he sees us. When we feel like all the things are passing us by, he sees us. As we arrive at chapter 13, it has been 13 years since the Lord has made his covenant with Abram since the last time he has spoken with Abram. 13 years since he heard from the Lord have you ever had to wait for something? I hate waiting. Patience is for wimps. Um, apparently, Abram and Sarai agreed with that statement because they couldn't wait. They make their compromise using her maidservant, Hagar. And all the mess that transpires after this, they pay for it as well. Um, we look at this and we wonder, it's like, why did they, why did they compromise? You know, you live, what happens in Abram's life between now and then, you live, you take care of the people in your life. Abram is different though. He hasn't forgotten God's promise. He may or may not think he is living it. He may think that, yeah, this thing with uh, Ishmael, this is fulfilling the covenant. I don't think he really believes that judging by his reaction in this chapter. He doesn't believe their, their idea was really what brought about God's promises here. Chapter 17 is a chapter of names. We have Abram and Sarai, and I'm so, I'm so happy, I'm so excited, because finally I can stop saying Abram and Sarai, and I can start saying Abraham and Sarah. And because I'm sure I've messed up only a couple hundred times with this. It's a chapter of names. So we have their names being changed over, and then we have the name of God being revealed to us with El Shaddai. Names were important in that time. They're still important today. But in Abram's time, um, it was the first blessing or curse that your parents give to you. I think it's still the same today. I mean, you didn't think much when you named your kids or when your parents named you, but what you call yourself, it matters. What does it mean? What do people associate with your name? For Abram, his name meant exalted father, which just seems ironic because he doesn't have any children. Your name—it does mean something. If it's the first blessing or curse your parents gave to you. I see some of these celebrity names they name their kids. It's like, yeah, that's a curse. You're hoping they stay rich and famous for their whole life because if they have to interact with the real world, it's not going to go super well for them. When you call them like, you know, dresser door or whatever they want to call their kids, it's the first blessing and curse. You know, and I think it's the same for us today. You know, do you even know what your name means? I know. Jason, Jason was a, uh, it's a Greek name, and it's, uh, you know, Jason the Argonauts, um, adventurer who goes to see, get a golden fleece, but there's a Jason in the Bible as well, in the book of Acts. Just simple faithfulness, when a mob is trying to get at the disciples, he hides them. Jason also means healer in the Greek, and I believe that God has actually used me as a method of spiritual healing for the people in my life. It's one of those things. I didn't think much about it when I was younger, but as I get older, man, all these opportunities, God just places me in these moments where people are, are suffering from spiritual hurt and then uses me to help heal that. Abram and Sarai, um, once again, Abram having that, I wrote, seems like an ironic name being called Exalted Father. And then we have our name of God revealed in here as well, Al Shaddai. Do you hear that? I think I hear Amy Grant singing from the 90s. <laughs> I had to do that joke again. I did that before when I, in my sermon he, um, because he knows my name in the same sermon series on the names of God. And I had preached briefly about El Shaddai in the past, but it wasn't on this scripture right here in Genesis 17. I mentioned that chapter, but I didn't really get to preach on it. So that was really a tease for this one. When God gives us his name or when people know God by a certain name, If we understand the context of it, we understand the name so much better. This is the context of El Shaddai. It's not Amy Grant. It is what we see here God Almighty. There is some debate on exactly what El Shaddai means. Kidner said a traditional analysis of of the name is El being God, Shah, who, day sufficient, the God who is sufficient. Clark says El Shaddai means I am, I am God, all sufficient, from Shada, to shed, to pour out. I am the God who pours out blessing, who gives them richly and abundantly and continually. Leopold explained that Shaddai comes from the root Shadad, which means to display power. In the Septuagint, that is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, It translates um, El Shaddai into a a word um, that means one who has his hand on everything. Me, I think you could put all those together and you still haven't scratched the surface of what it means to call God El Shaddai, that he is the one who has his hand on us. That doesn't mean much when things are going well, but when things are going really terrible, when you are waiting on this promise that you know is going to come across sometime, but you don't know, you're already 99 years old and you're wondering, has God passed me by? No, he is Al Shaddai. He has his hand on me. Young people, he has his hand on you. So often it feels like, because when you are young, it feels like when you mess up or things don't go the way you want, it is the end of the world. But know that God has his hand on you. And he richly pours out his blessing. He is sufficient. It means he is enough. The sufficiency of God comes under attack, unfortunately, not just from the world, but even from his own people. One issue that comes up with the people of God from the beginning of time until now and until the Lord takes us home is believing truly that God is enough. Our first father, Adam, and our first mother, Eve, believed that God was holding out on them, so they took the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. At the men's breakfast, I mentioned this, why didn't Adam and Eve just ask God for wisdom if that's what they wanted? But they don't. They believe that, oh, he's not enough. I need to take this fruit. Abram and Sarai are unwilling to wait on the Lord. so So they think they'll have Hagar sleep with Abram and this way they will fulfill the covenant. But how about today? Today, we have really clever ways of getting around, of having to depend solely on God for what our hearts and souls truly need. We will turn to anything, and I mean anything and everything before we turn to God in our time of need. How many times has you have you had this story? And I, finally, I decided to pray about it. You know what that means? When I first started this, I didn't think God was going to be enough, so I had to hedge my bets. We have pop psychology. The different things we see on the different whatever reels or TikToks that we see. And we're like, okay, that, that's good. I'm going to follow that. We have the personality tests. When I was younger, we had those tests that it's like, am I a bear or a badger or whatever? And then it became the Higgs boson test, which is, you know, you have a certain number, you're an engineer and whatever. And now you have the Enneagram, which by the way, has its foundations in the occult. And it was written by people who are literally hearing from demons. Um, and now people are like, oh, well, as an age, you would be like that. Nothing can tell you who you are other than the Lord. And you can go to every empty well and find nothing. Some people literally go to other religions and being like, well, this is, this is true. It was just stolen from God. But it's not. It's just an, another empty Well. Critical theory and activism replaces the worth that God and only God can give the person. And do you know why a generation are so in desperate need of identity that they're starting to go by other genders or other, or, or other animals? It's because a whole generation before them grew up in the church and said to God, you are not enough. We will not have this man as our king. They believe that he isn't sufficient to tell me who I am. And now a generation's coming up and they don't believe anybody's sufficient to tell them who they are. So they are incredibly confused. Only God can really change an Abram to an Abraham. Telling a generation you can decide who you really are is not just wrong, it's not just ill-conceived, it is anti-Christ, as in trying to replace Christ. In that it wants to take his throne and make a new covenant that he has not made. But only El Shaddai can, one, keep his promises. Two, sanctify. And three, do the impossible. Verses one through eight, only God can keep his promises. Abram and Sarai, they thought we'd help God out. We'll help him keep his promises. But you remember when we went through that covenant, who walked through the animals? Did Abram walk through the animals? No. No. God walked through the animals. He keeps his promises. And nobody can hurry him up and nobody can say to him, what have you done? Abram's waiting. It's not just the 13 years. Abram was 75 years old when he left Haran in Genesis twelve four, where we began this. He was 86 years old when his son Ishmael was born of Hagar, the servant girl. And in Genesis 16, 15 and, and 15 and 16, he has waited, um, that was in Genesis 15 verses, 16 verses 15 and 16, he has waited some 25 years for the fulfillment of God's promise to give a son to Sarai. Have you ever had this in your life where something comes up and it just devastates you and you wonder, what is this about? Because when I had worse things before in my life, I withstood them very easily, but now it's become all the worse it's because it's not just that one thing. It's all those things that you didn't properly handle, and then now the weight of it is crushing you. I want you to understand where Abram and Sarai Sarai, were at when they decided to make this compromise. It's because they were waiting. It's not, it didn't come out of doubt. It came out of a sick heart desiring these things. They waited 25 years for this promise. I can't wait 2.5 seconds after that light turns green. You're getting the horn. We wonder why he and his wife compromised. Wait 25 years for a dream, for something you really want. And tell me that you won't compromise. In verse 1, the Lord appears to Abram. and And this right here, as he's appearing to Abram, this is what is called a Christophany an appearance of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, God the Son. How do we know this is God the Son and not God the Father, being a Christophany instead of a theophany? It's because he appears as a person, that is Jesus Christ. In in 1 John, we are told that nobody has seen the Father. Nobody has seen the Father. When somebody's seen the Father, they saw a type and shadow, Jesus Christ in the person of the angel of the Lord, comes and reveals himself. He's the image of the invisible God, including the Old Testament. This is a Christophany. The son appears at various times in the Old Testament. Most commonly, he appears as the angel of the Lord, but not exclusively so. He appears to Abram in verse 1, and he says he is El Shaddai, and that Abram will walk before him and be blameless. Now, the word blameless right here, in some of your translations, it's going to say perfect, but the word in the Hebrew really means is to be whole, as in God wanted him to be wholly his. Sometimes, you know, the big, biggest problems we have in our Christian life is that we have something inside of us, a sin, a desire, a dream. And God, who's sovereign over all, who bought you with his blood, says, that's mine now. And we say, no, it's mine. And I'm going to keep it. He wants every bit of Abram and he wants every bit of you. In verse 2, he reminds Abram of the covenant he made those 13 years before. Abram of, he reminds Abram of who he is. He is El Shaddai, and he'll do what he says. He is the only one who can do it too. Unfortunately, Abram and Sarai, they have made that abundantly clear. So much of our issues is that we forget he is the only one who can do what we truly need. In verses 3 and 4, we see Abram falling on his face. This is a sign of deep humility. When God, when, and then, go God, then God goes further and he is about to rename Abram. Before he renames Abram, he teases him about it. Not, not, what I mean is that he's, he's giving an indication of what he will name him. God keeps his word in every way that he would be a father of nations. Abraham, Abraham truly is a father of nations. We know that in the physical. How many nations claim Abraham as their father? I mean, I could name them off, but it'd probably be too many to name. And I know I, I, I've got the time up there, so I won't go too terribly long today. Um, but we know at least three major world religions claim Abraham as their father. In Dubuque, there used to be a, a or maybe there still is, this um, forum called the Children of Abraham. And actually, I was invited to it a couple times. I decided not to because I didn't want to give the false impression that we're all just one in the faith. We just have different avenues to God. That's not true. Um, But we know physically he's a father of nations. We also know spiritually he is our father if you have faith in Christ Jesus, Galatians. If we have faith in Christ Jesus, we are sons of Abraham. But in, but, um, in his and Sarai's actions, you know what we see in this, the whole Ishmael thing, is that they were willing to settle for a lesser blessing than what God had for them. And this is the great tragedy of so many people is that God will only give you the best, but if you won't accept the best, you won't get anything. So we settle for second best. So George MacDonald, he was the inspiration for C.S. Lewis. He said that God makes it, it, God finds it hard to give because he'll only give his best. And we find it hard to receive because we won't receive his best. The promise that he'd have an heir through physical means and of people, not just, to, not just through physical means and a people, but an eternal people that God would make for him out of, out of everyone who believes on the name of Jesus Christ. In verse 5, we finally have the name changed. No longer Abram, I can say Abraham. And even when I refer to things in the, in the before this, I'm going to try to use Abraham as well, because the New Testament writers do, so it's not, it's not wrong. <laughs> Finally, I can call Abram, Abraham. Verse 5, God changes Abram's name, which meant exalted father to Abraham, which means a father of multitude. You too have a name God calls you. Do you know that? You have a new name in Jesus Christ. I mean, first of all, what he calls you is beloved, son, daughter. But he also has a new name for you in Revelation chapter 2, verses 17. 17. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except for the one who has received it. I wonder what my new name is. Isn't that cool? Just you and God know it, and that's it. You know, in Revelation, he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor, and they were part of the Roman Empire. And you know something? Many of them? They had some influence and they would be invited to parties. And when you got invited to a party in the Roman Empire, a courier would take a stone, a white stone, and they would write your name on it and the instructions and they'd put it by your house. But as soon as they believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, no more white stones. Sometimes we scoff and we're like, okay, if you're not being literally skinned alive and crucified, you're you're not going through persecution. Persecution comes in all forms. There was one of the forms. And God knew this. He saw them. He's El Royi. He sees that they're like, okay, it's, a, it's not comparable, but it does kind of suck when people in your life start distancing because you love Jesus. So he tells them, I've got a name for you, and I've got a banquet. I've got a party that you can't imagine. And you're invited. You're welcome. You have a new name. Abram has this new name. Abraham, which is father of a multitude, a multitude of nations. And we understand in salvation history that it's much bigger than that of Israel, but it is all who believed on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It makes sense, doesn't it? When you came to Christ, you were adopted into the family of God. What happens when you are adopted? Your name changes. You know, many of the Caesars were not the biological sons of the previous Caesar they were oftentimes adults. Adults. The Caesar in power would see an adult. He would see some person. He's like, they have the qualities or maybe not. Who knows what their reasoning is, but he says, you, I want you to be my son. I will adopt you and I will give you the kingdom after my time. I will make you my heir. And that is what the God of all the universe does for us. He then, in verse 6, tells him to be fruitful, to multiply. This is the creation mandate, but instead of being for the entire world, it is for this region. This time, once again, it's for that region. For us today, we are also told to be fruitful, but in a spiritual sense, to make disciples, spiritual sons and daughters. Verse 7 and 8, we see that this is an eternal covenant that God will make with his covenant people, that he is giving them this land. What's the nature of this covenant? It's not for a certain point in time. It's eternal. So people ask many times, okay, should Christians support Israel, the country of Israel? The answer without a doubt is absolutely. 100%. Absolutely without a doubt. Because, just because there's a new covenant doesn't mean that the old covenants are null and void. Christ has Completed the old covenants, and this is an eternal covenant. It doesn't get taken away from them just because we have a we have the Gentiles who are now grafted in to this branch. In college, we had a visiting missionary from the Arab world, and he had a big issue with this part of it. He says, like, you know, who's responsible for uh, for establishing Israel? I'm like, God. And I don't know if he heard me, but I said, and I want to be on his side of this, if you don't mind. <laughs> It's an eternal covenant. So one thing only El Shaddai can do is he, he's the only one who can keep his promises. Two, he's the only one who can sanctify. Sanctification is a churchy word we use a lot, but many have no idea what it means. It means a separation from the old sinful nature. What the New Testament writers would use as a metaphor, the flesh, the sinful nature, and it's a joining together with Christ. You don't see that word in any of your translations in this chapter sanctify, but you do see sanctification in the, in the metaphor of the sign of this covenant, which is circumcision, which is a cutting away of the flesh. In verse nine, God's covenant people, God makes Abram um, makes Abraham, Abraham's people, his people, His covenant and eternal covenant will not be forgotten, and his people will not be forgotten either. In verses ten and eleven, it's the sign of the covenant. Noah got a sign with his covenant, it was a rainbow. Abram gets a sign with his which is circumcision. The people of the ancient Near East, they looked very similar. They could pass for one another. In the book of Esther, we see Hadassah being calling herself Esther so that she would blend in, so they wouldn't know she was a Jew. The men of the Jewish nation couldn't. And it was on purpose. Circumcision was assigned to all the nations. Nobody owns them but me. You can enslave them, you can oppress them, but I own them. And watch what you do with my people. Egypt found out the hard way. Persia found out the hard way. The Roman Empire finds out the hard way. Mordecai couldn't, her cousin couldn't, pretend he was a Persian, people would know that he is a Jew no matter what he would do because what God had commanded in circumcision changes them forever. It's a cutting away of the flesh. God did not want them only to be circumcised in the flesh, however, but in the spirit. Both the Old and New Testament scream this. It's not enough just to be circumcised in the flesh. In fact, New Testament believers, we are told not to be circumcised in the flesh, but be circumcised of the heart. If you are not um, if you're not circumcised in the heart, being circumcised in the flesh absolutely does nothing. It's a sinful nature that needs to be cut away. So in the Old Testament, even in the Old Testament, we have here the need to be circumcised in the, of the heart and not just in the flesh. In Deuteronomy 10.16, I think I have that in your guys'— Circumcision, therefore—circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart and be no longer stubborn— So even people back then, they could not say, okay, I'm just ignorant that God wants anything more than just a physical observance, but God wants a spiritual observance. Then in the New Testament, we have Romans 2, 28 and 29, Colossians 2, 9 through 12. And then what I want to bring to your attention today is in our first martyr, Stephen, of the New Testament in Acts chapter seven, verses 51 through 53. This is what gets him killed. You stiff-necked people Uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did. So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute, and they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one whom you now betrayed and murder, you who received the law as delivered by enemies by angels and did not keep it. He is giving his defense before the Jewish High Council. And what he says right here is that he repeats the words of Moses, that you're uncircumcised in your hearts and in your ears. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute and kill? And the response to that, we'll show you, we're going to kill you. (laughs) That's not the best way. You think I'm violent? I'll punch you in the face and show you how violent I am there was a need. What we're reading right here, even though this is the sign of the old covenant, is not required of the new covenant. In fact, if you think you're going to be circumcised and get some some special blessing in the new covenant, Paul says, the cross of Christ has no value to you. But in the New Testament, it's the circumcision of the heart. It's a cutting away of the old sinful nature. This is something only God can do. If we try to do this in our own effort, in the flesh, we will utterly, utterly fail. In verses 12 through 14, the the remainder of this section title is when and who should be circumcised. When Paul was talking about his former boasting, he said the source of pride for him is that he was circumcised on the eighth day. It was only men. If there were to be any ridicule among the nations, it would be the men who should bear the ridicule. In the new covenant, it is all who are to be circumcised, not of the flesh, but of the spirit. To resist the sinful nature, to reckon it as dead, and to be made alive in Jesus Christ. There are so many attempts to purify ourselves, to cut away the sin from ourselves using our own effort. If we try to do this ourselves, then we are only trying to justify ourselves, and we cannot justify ourselves. If we could, Christ didn't need to die in the first place. In Paul's day, there were those who told others that if they wanted to be real Christians, if they really wanted to follow the new covenant, they needed to be circumcised. At worst, this is silly. Why would, you, why would you continue following the shadow when you have the substance? Why would you continue following the old covenant when you have the new covenant? At worst, it was damnable heresy because they'd be trusting in their own actions. To start with the spirit, then trying to justify yourself through the flesh. We do this when we attempt to see ourselves as better or more spiritual than others by what we do in the physical reality. That robs the Spirit of His glory because it is not because of you that you are more loving, more peaceful, more patient, more good, more gentle, or self control, but the work of the Holy Spirit inside of you. So when people see, man, you used to fly off the handle, and you're like, I know, right? Isn't it amazing what God can do in someone's life? Isn't it amazing what the Holy Spirit can do in your life? and therefore giving God glory instead of keeping it for ourselves. Here's the third thing only El Shaddai can do. He can do the impossible. This is the section that I hadn't read, but I'll read to you as we go along. In verse 15, and God said to Abram, as for Sarai, Sarai your wife, you shall call her name, um, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. Sarah means princess. And in verse 16, I will bless her, and moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become, and through her shall become nations, kings of peoples shall come from her. So Sarah means princess, because royalty will come from her. You know, I think they already knew this, and this is why they had to do what they had to do with, with Hagar. They knew that this covenant, if it could be accomplished through natural means, it doesn't have really any bearing. Oh yeah, Sarah is your princess. That's right. You know, God is the God of the impossible. Sarah Sarah is about to be 90 years old. Not this Sarah, the Sarah in the Bible. In the natural, a 99-year-old can impregnate a younger woman. We see it with Hagar. It happens in the natural. But for a woman who's pretty long past menopause, that's supernatural. Amen. That's supernatural. You know, after 400 years of silence between the Old Testament and the New Testament, there was this young girl in Israel who was engaged to be married. She, w- she had not known a man, but an angel appeared to her, told her that she would conceive and bear a child and that he this child would save his people from their sins. She asked, how could this be since she was a virgin? And the angel told her, and... In- Luke chapter 1, verse 37 For nothing will be impossible with God. There are a lot of pretenders to the impossible. Only El Shaddai can do the impossible. Verses 15 and 16 Sarai is changed to Sarah. This is impossible. Before we get to verse 17, I want to read from you from the New Testament the Apostle Paul commenting about this right here. The Bible interprets the scripture. Scripture interprets scripture. If you're, ever, if you're ever wondering about something and you're confused, find a clearer source of whatever that's talking about and go by that. Romans 4, 18 through 21. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he had been told, so your offspring shall be. Verse 19, he did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which is good as dead, since he was about a 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. I told you, only, only, God, only El Shaddai can do the impossible. In verse 17... Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, shall a child be born to a man who is a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? He falls on his face again. He fell on his face beginning out of deep humility. What's he doing here? Isn't that seeming weird? He falls on his face and he laughs. Does he not believe God? Does he not believe in these promises? Is that why he's laughing? We can confidently say, no, that's not why he's laughing, because of Romans chapter 4, verses 18 through 21. So why in the world is he laughing? Well, there are many different ways to laugh. Mary Poppins taught us that, didn't she? You have happy laughing. Ha, ha, ha. I can't can't laugh on command. But pretend I'm happy laughing. Something pleases you. You have laughing that doubts. Somebody tells you something that's strange credulity, and you're like, ha, 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 ha." okay. Uh Sure thing. Yeah. Right, Jan. That's the, that's the phrase. You have laughed at doubts. You have laughed at ridicules. Schattenfreude. If we're playing a board game and something bad happens to you, I start laughing. <laughs> There's giggling between friends is an inside joke. But you also have the kind of laughing where your heart is so full, ready to burst with joy. You laugh so hard you cry. The laughing that is uncontrollable because substance, because the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of what is not seen, is here in front of you. Isaac's name means he laughs. It's the laughter we see first that his name is, that he would bring joy, unspeakable. He would be the child of promise, the child born of the Spirit. There is a lot of laughter around Isaac, his name being one, Sarah. In the next chapter, when he, she hears about from God Himself, from the angel of the Lord, she laughs in doubt. Lot's son-in-laws, they laugh at him because they do not think because they do not believe him, they believe he is joking. Those who hear about Isaac's birth, they laugh. When Isaac follows the wrong example of his father and tells the king of the Philistines that Sarah is not his wife, but his sister. The Philistine king sees through the ruse because he sees them giggling to one another, which, by the way, is one of the most fun things in the Bible. Sometimes we see the people in the Bible, like statues who can speak, and then you realize like Isaac and Rebekah, they were giggling to each other, and the king of the Philistines is like, no, they're not brother and sister. They're lovers, they're husband and wife. Abram is laughing because his joy is overflowing. It's pure. It's in faith and not in doubt. And in verses 18 through 20, he wonders about his first son by the slave woman, Ishmael. What about Ishmael? And Abram said to God, Oh, that Ishmael may live before you. Verse 19. And God said no. In some of your translations, it said God said yes. How can you translate the same word as yes or no? I'll just tell you. So the, the Hebrew word here, it'd be more like our English word, indeed, even though I, I don't think there's anything wrong with the way they translate it, yes or no. It's if somebody's saying something to you and you, you're talking about something that they're, they're not seeming to understand, like you're like, okay, at dinner, we're going to have roast. And they're like, I thought we were going to have salad. And you would say, yes, but the main dish is going to be roast. They're right, but they're wrong. Because we're talking about the main dish they may not have been listening, right? So you tell them that. Or you would say, no, we will have salad, but the main dish is going to be roast beef. So Abram says, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. And God says basically, indeed, but in verse uh, here, no, but Sarah, your wife shall bear you a son and you shall call his name Isaac, which once again means he laughs. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. Verse 20, as for Ishmael, I have heard you. So God is saying, yep, Ishmael will live before me, but it's not gonna be in the way he's been talking to Abraham about. I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply him greatly. He shall father 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation, and I will establish my covenant with Isaac, whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year. And that is why gas is $4 a gallon. Really condensing all of world history into that little part, right? That, right. In verses 20 and 22, God actually gives Abram a timetable within a year. This will be one of the first times God actually tells him exactly when he plans to, um, plans to um, complete his promise. Most of the time in our life, God doesn't give us a timetable. We invent timetables, and then we get upset because God does not operate in our timetable. God is not slow, as some understand slowness. He completes his promises the way he completes his promises We were meeting up with a lot of college friends this last week, and I was talking with one of them, and um, her and her husband went to college to be pastors. Now, for the past, how many years since we've been in college? 15, 18, nearly 20 years since college? Wow, I can't believe it. Um, Their road has taken different paths and not into ministry. But very recently, God had done such a work in their life, and now he's taking courses. And my first response was, God is faithful, and she, she started laughing, you get not the same kind of laughing Abraham had, is because, you're right, she's like, that's the first thing he said when he, when he told her, is that God is faithful in keeping his promises. It never looks the way we think it's going to look. And I so wish somebody would have told that to me when I was younger. So I would not put all of that burden on myself, that I've somehow missed God, because I'm not leading to the zenith of my potential or whatever rah-rah, siskumba nonsense people made up at the time. Most of Abraham's life is not as the father of nations. Most of the apostles' life is not preaching to multitudes. A lot of it was taking beatings. And they glorified God after that as well. In verses 23 through 27, so I won't read for you today, but this is something Abraham is obedient. Not partially obedient like he had been under Abram but he is fully obedient under Abraham. And you know something? This was probably a bit more difficult than switching from one place to another. Circumcision is not a pleasant process as an adult. If you didn't know that, you can read a few more chapters later on in in, uh, in the book of Genesis, and you'll see that after a very terrible crime, Jacob's sons, um, Jacob's family convinces the neighboring kingdom to have all their men circumcised, and Jacob's two sons kills every single one of them because they start getting sick and they're in pain and the soreness of circumcision. Abram Abraham is no longer no longer wants to partially obey the Lord. He obeys him completely. He obeys the Lord. He had believed the Lord and it was credited to him as righteousness, and we are now seeing the fruit of this. Worship team, would you come up at this time? We see in here God's promises. The promise of the covenant, only El Shaddai can keep these promises. The new name that, that Abram has, now Abraham. And the cutting away of the flesh, is circumcision, but really what it represents is the cutting away of the sinful nature, which is completed in the new covenants. Before I get into the challenge for you and I today, there was something that struck me about this the other day. And this gave me such a well of love and pity for those who call themselves transgendered today. The Bible says that the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see his glorious light. We know this, the devil, he's a copycat. He doesn't make anything. When the devil's described, he's described in simile, like and as. He roams around like a lion. Jesus Christ is the lion of Judah. He masquerades as an angel of light. He's not an angel of light. And he takes the covenants of God and he perverts perverts them to destroy whom he might devour. The first sign of the covenant was the rainbow, right? When we see a rainbow today, we don't think of God's promise, do we? Because it's been perverted. And the word around it is pride. That was deadly of deadly sins. And the devil laughs. This covenant right here, what we just read, what do we see? Abraham gets a new name. There's a cutting away of the flesh, and there's a hope for the future. Here's the lie that's being told to a generation. Give yourself a new name. Choose for yourself who you will be. It doesn't matter what your physical reality is. And then, you know what's so sad? What breaks my heart is that they're convinced to cut away their flesh, to mutilate themselves, in a perverse, demonic circumcision. Believing that that will give them a hope for a future, that it will save their life. That's what they're told. After our state and other states banned gender reassignment surgery, which is emasculation and defeminization of a person's body, people were were saying, oh, what they're promoting is suicide. So they're telling a generation, do this or you'll die. So they do these things. And they change their bodies forever, believing in a different covenant, a demonic covenant. And then when they finally come to their senses, the damage has been done because a lie has been believed. Know that our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against the prince and paladins. And sometimes we make this such a political thing that we see as, it, as, a, as an us versus them thing instead of a rescuing the perishing. Because the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. And he has used the signs of the covenant of God to do so. To pervert them into something instead of giving life. The first rainbow gave life. The covenant of circumcision pointed to the one who would circumcise our hearts and give us a new name. These are now perverted and I know a lot of churches, they don't want to talk about these things because you're going to lose people or people are not going to want to come. People might be watching this and they're like, I'm not going to come to a church like that. They hate people. No, I don't. I love them so much that I'm willing to endure whatever hate or anger anybody has. Because I don't want to see you. I want to see you in heaven. I want to see you believing the truth of the Lord because that's where freedom is. There's things that seem ripe for a season, but they're not. And they will not produce peace. Only El Shaddai can do that. Those of you who are in the Lord, you know that you have a new name? I hope you're encouraged by that. Have you forgotten that he is all powerful? When I first preached about El Shaddai, I talked about Jupiter. How Jupiter has a storm on the face of the planet that's five times the size of the earth. And we, without a doubt, know God made that planet. But then we think we come, we get bad news from the doctor. We get bad news from our banker. We get bad news from a spouse or from a kid. And we think God isn't seeing me anymore. If he cares, he's unable to help. No, he is El Shaddai. What do you need to commit to God's care and control today? As Abraham continually is encouraged, God will keep his promises. What do you need to be encouraged with today that you need to give to God's care and control? Are you, ter- are you tired of trying to sanctify yourself? Of trying to make change in the flesh by your own will? Give it up to God's care and control Be encouraged. You have a new name. Worship team, would you lead us in our final song? I pray above all things that you are encouraged today. That you remember that he is El Shaddai and he will keep his promises. He's the only one who can. My prayer during this song as you reflect on the message is that you'd be encouraged to know that there's a name that God knows that only you and him will know. And that he has invited you to his banquet. And I encourage you today that as we look at the this covenant, the sign of this covenant, we'd be more emboldened to pray and to stand in the gap to intercede for a generation that is being lied to, that we'd put on the full armor of God and make our stand on the day of evil. Worship team, would you please lead us? Thank you so much.